All right. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Philippians chapter 2. We are in verses 12 through 18 this morning. As you were flipping there, I will read this aloud. This is a word of the Lord. Therefore, my beloved, geez, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights of the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for every single person here this morning. Nobody is here by accident. And Lord, whatever uh, we have brought to uh, this service this morning, whatever has happened this week, whatever burdens we may be carrying in our lives right now, Lord, I pray that we can um, give this over to you, give them over to you, Lord, and that anything that may be in our ears this morning that have blocked them to hear from you, Lord, that you would, through your Spirit, remove those things, Lord, that you would give us hearts to receive what you have to speak to us this morning. I pray for anybody in this room who may be ill, Lord, or anybody who has family that may be at home who may be ill or, or sick right now, that you would bring healing to them, Lord. We continue to pray for Rick and Angie as they're still mourning the, the loss of their son. Lord, would you be with them, comfort them, Jesus, in ways that they have never experienced before in their lives. So, Lord, uh, would you speak through me this morning? Would your word be living and active, Lord? Would it be uh, piercing between bow and marrow within us? We love you, Jesus. We're here for you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. So we are entering into a new section in the book of Philippians. And my goal is that when we are done with this letter, that you will feel as if you have some you know, mastery over this book, that you will be able to read it with understanding of what it says, what it means, and be able to pray through it just more effectively in its message. But as we dive into the latter portion of this book, this is kind of the application portion, if you will, uh, things will not sometimes in these latter chapters appear to be as organized as they were previously. Different sections will feel scattered to us, and I want to help you understand why? I want to quickly, at the beginning of the sermon, equip you with some basic tools that will help you uh, to interpret some of these New Testament letters on your own. Maybe some of you haven't had the, the, you know, the, the privilege of being in a classroom setting to learn how to interpret the Bible on your own. So maybe this little you know, thing I give you this morning will be of help for you to do that. So this is my teacher hat. I'm putting it on, take some notes, whatever, you know, for a few minutes here. 
even those application portions in these his letters can feel a little scattered to us, uh, we can assume that if you were the original audience receiving this letter, it would not have felt scattered as a member of the church at Philippi. Paul knew this church very intimately, and more than likely, he was addressing very specific issues and things that they were facing. But to us, we're like, Paul, you are jumping around, scattered shot like you have ADD. Like, what's going on? But here's an analogy that I hope can be helpful when it comes to reading these letters, or the fancy word is epistles in the New Testament. Who's ever been in the room when somebody is on the phone? Right? You can't hear the other side of the conversation, but you can hear just that one person's responses. If you're trying to eavesdrop, right, you'll be able to follow about 50% of the conversation. So here's an example. We had the Gibson family over last night, so I'm going to talk to them for a minute and see if you can follow through with me in terms of what I'm saying to them. This will make sense to them, but you know, so I'll say, guys, thank you for your generous gift last night. The tacos were great the other night. Our kids devoured it. Alex says the pasta was not actually homemade. Ed, the missing one on the list I couldn't remember was worshipers. Uh, I finally remember that this morning. Uh, my, uh, Abel beat all of your kids in Street Fighter, so that's cool. And he was bragging all morning. Thank you for coming over. We may actually go to the zoo tomorrow. We're all looking forward to it. Thank you. So they understood all of that, correct? Yes, they do. All of you are like, I don't know what he's talking about. I can maybe piece together some things, but you weren't there last night, right? You just heard 50% of a conversation that made sense to them. But if you were to study my words, right, you would have to get to work. What's he talking about? Because there's a zoo in the city, so something about, you know, taco, pasta, okay. You would have to do some homework to figure out what I was saying. Now, this is what it's like to read the New Testament letters, Okay, this is the challenge presented to us as we have to study. Paul is addressing specific things that if you were them, you would have known exactly what these things were addressing, and we have to do our homework. So I'm going to do, uh, uh, I try to do my homework this week at least, in understanding these things and trying to draw them out from God's word, uh, to draw from it the timeless principles that you and I must take heed to and listen by the help of the Holy Spirit. So teaching portions done. Hopefully that was a little educational for you, and hopefully will help make sense of the passage today. So here's a roadmap as we dive in. It begins with the word, therefore. So as we said last week, therefore is therefore a reason. All of what follows is in light of last week's sermon, that master story that we are invited to participate in. We are invited to have mirrored in our life through the patterns that we live in. That Jesus gave up that status in heaven and came down to the form of a servant in order to die for you and I. So if we're, if we're called to participate in that, in that humility of thinking of other people as more important than ourselves, just like Jesus, of pursuing the interests of others before your own, just like Jesus did, if we are called to do that, how does that affect the church? How does that affect our day-to-day life? So the first stop, we'll be looking closely at Paul's encouragement for the church's growth and discipleship to continue even when he is absent. We will stop and look at what healthy church leadership looks like in light of that master story and why Paul would say what he said. Number two, we'll get a little theological as we see just who it is who is working in our lives as we attempt to work out the already accomplished salvation that we received. 
And finally, we will once again revisit the lack of unity in the Philippian church and their grumbling and their complaining and Paul's plea to strive together in joy to be unified. So let's dive in. Verse 12, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul reminds them, as he said early on, that they have since the beginning been walking with Christ in obedience. He reminds them of this through the affectionate term, beloved, a term of almost family endearments, reminding them that they were not just individual Christians who live out their faith apart from one another, but rather they are brought into this new family of Christ. Their obedience, however, should not be dependent on Paul's presence, lest they become a cult of personality. What was that song in the 80s, uh, Living Color? Remember that song? There you go. Their growth shouldn't be dependent on Paul being there, especially since his future was so uncertain in light of him being in jail. Here, almost in passing, Paul mentions this, but I want to stop because I feel like there's something we really have to pay attention to, especially in our modern times in our American church culture, especially in the last 20 years, okay? We can assume that Paul was a pretty big presence when he walked into somebody's Sunday gathering, okay, or any kind of prayer meeting or Bible study, if he walked in, people would have been like, Paul's here, right? He was that kind of, he was, he was famous in these early churches because he planted almost all of them, or the people who did plant them were sent out from Paul, right? He was a big deal and a big influence in these early churches, right? So almost in passing, the danger that Paul is, is addressing is this, Just because I am not here right now, Church of Philippi, don't allow your progress and growth as a church to be dependent on my presence. I am not there right now. And just when you obeyed Jesus when I was with you, even more so, learn to do this in your Christian life and as a church without me. Learn to grow in Christ in my absence. It's not dependent on me. Your church is not dependent on Paul. So if we are to bring this to modern day, 2020 application, I want to do so via story because I have experienced something very, very more common in my life that I wish it were. And it's happening a lot of times over a lot of churches in America. And it's heartbreaking to see it happen to the degree that it is. It's amplified the past 20 or 25 years more in incredible ways. I've seen it firsthand multiple times. Perhaps some of you have seen it firsthand multiple times. And when it happens, as we'll see, it, it can destroy churches or almost destroy churches. So let me tell you this fictional story about a guy named Charlie. I am making this guy up, okay? But Charlie is just like many people that I have met and encountered in my life, especially in the pastoral ministry. So this Charlie, he grew up in a broken home. Like the majority of adults today, especially around my age, Charlie had family issues that brought a lot of insecurities as well as emotional difficulties into his adult life. 
Charlie became a Christian, and since he had this big, charismatic leadership personality, and since Charlie can draw a crowd, since he is dynamic, he's energetic, he's funny and humorous, many people around him could see that Charlie could, could really draw a crowd for Jesus and started recommending him to pursue the vocation of pastor. So Charlie goes to seminary. He gets a respectable degree. Afterwards, he is called to go start a new church. Charlie becomes Pastor Charlie. He was trained in all the same ways, just like I was, unfortunately, in many ways, almost as a new business owner, right, in terms of focusing on church planting. You need to be an entrepreneur, right? You need to have strong leadership, do all that it takes to grow a church and market yourself well, draw a crowd, and raise lots of money. Pastor Charlie, just five years into this new church, has hundreds of people in attendance, Numbers are always rising. The church is taking in lots of money through tithes and offerings. Pastor Charlie is successful according to the measurements of success concerning gathering a crowd and financial solvency. But then problems start to arise. Most of the successful things at the church are centered around gifts and talents that only Charlie has. People attend to hear Charlie's sermons and to see his dynamic personality in action while sitting in the midst of a large crowd. Charlie has a hard time taking criticism and being corrected. People begin realizing that he doesn't really have many close friends who can hold him accountable, but rather has surrounded himself with yes people who kind of just go along with his vision with little to no resistance or questioning. Associate pastors and leaders next to him, they rise up and they disappear and they fall away because they aren't a good fit or they don't share his vision, Charlie's vision, or have some hidden moral failures that no one knows except Charlie. Charlie's inner circle is always changing, and the ones that are kicked out disappear from church altogether. After time, Charlie becomes very defensive about himself. He has created many enemies. He has pushed many people away and has a knack for manipulating many to see from his point of view concerning his relational difficulties. Above all, he is concerned with his position of power and influence with a major focus on church finances and having some control of them and maintaining those things at whatever cost it may be. Emmanuel, I hate to say it, but I have seen firsthand multiple occasions such personalities rise up in the church, but the modern church has given room for this, right? We've given room for these kind of personalities to rise up because we often like to measure a church's success on numbers and financial solvency. High Sunday morning attendance and high Tithing means, you know, uh, then these, these personalities who can draw those things in are the people that the church wants to lead them. And they clap when they see high numbers and they see lots of money. But here's the problem. Number one, that's not really the way that we measure success of churches, but that's a different sermon for a different day. But that's very important. That is not a successful church. High numbers and lots of money does not mean your church is healthy. It's very, very important to know. But... In these kind of circumstances, a lot of that quote-unquote success happens and is dependent on Charlie's presence, right? It must, it can only happen if he is there. And all those systems are kind of built to be dependent on his big personality, his gifts and talents that he has kind of circled around himself. Now, this is a plague for the modern church. Opposite of Paul's words, and Paul says, you guys don't need my presence. I'm not there. Even more so because I'm not there, flourish in Christ. These pastors like Charlie can say directly or indirectly, you need me, 
for this church to grow. Healthy churches need not only healthy pastors, but pastors that know that it is not dependent on them, that the institution of the church is not resting on their shoulders or their gifts or their talents, but rather like Paul, especially like we will see next week, pastors must carry that burden with other people, all with the goal that if they are to, if they were to vanish overnight, that the church will still have the tools and equipping necessary to flourish without that leader and not face collapse. Pastors like Charlie, when they vanish overnight, oftentimes the church vanishes overnight. When you see that pattern happening, you know that people were there because of that person and not because of the grander Great Commission, you know, uh, vision and mission that Jesus has laid out for the church. We know when that happens that the church became very closely identified with that personality. Here's reality, that we are the bride of Christ. I'm speaking from experience, guys. I've seen this happen so many times, and it's devastating. I've seen churches almost just vanish when that pastor leaves, and it's heartbreaking, and it's devastating. But we are the bride of Christ. Jesus is our chief shepherd, not me, not the elders, not any other leader. If I vanish overnight, the church must go on. That is what Paul, almost in passing, is saying. If the American church can only take heed to this and know the unhealthy measures of success that we have laid out that draw unhealthy people to rise up and meet those boxes but almost drive churches into the ground because of it. This is so important for the health and the future of the American church, for the long-term health and the long-term growth. It's important for you guys to understand the vision I'm trying to cast. When I look at scriptures and I see stuff like this, I'm like, this is how church leadership must be. This is what I want to do, what I want to cultivate here at Emmanuel with all of my heart, uh, whatever means that I possibly can do, this is what I want here. Now, what does this healthy church look like? What are the aspects, aspects of church that need to be had if the show can go on without Paul and Philippi? What are some of the characteristics of that cross-shaped church, as we talked about last week, this idea of cruciformity, okay, a life shaped by the cross? Well, it looks multifaceted, but I want to look at the following verses and the specific things mentioned here in this text that Paul says that that church need, needed to focus on. So let's look at them one by one. He says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That may appear to be strange language to our evangelical ears, right? Didn't Jesus work out our salvation for us? I think that's kind of the wrong question, though. I'm sure some of you have said this before. I got a new job. I try to fix my car, and someone says, great. Well, how's that new job working out for you, right? The idea is the ongoing result and effect of the event that you already attained. How's it working out for you? You were saved in Christ by faith alone. Yes, that has happened. You've already received that, but how's it working in your life right now? How's that playing out, that already accomplished event? How's that playing out in your life right now. Paul's an evangelist beneath his leadership. They became Christians. He led them to salvation in Christ. Your initial salvation, it changes your life forever. You are not to be the same. It is not just a hell insurance card that says, now I'm not going to hell. I'm all good. No, this changes your life. It is a new life that we are always continually working out. What's the result been of your already accomplished salvation in your life? 
When Paul directs them to do this, he says we must work it out with fear and trembling. He is reminding them that the grace and love given to us is of the holy, almighty God who humbled himself to take on flesh and even become obedient to death. The, as Peter said, the most, one of the most shocking verses when he was talking on, on uh, preaching the book of Acts, he says, you crucified the author of life. It's like, wow, Peter, that's, that's some pretty intense, but it's true that with fear and trembling we must remember the God who created life subjected himself to death and the suffering that goes along with it. And Paul is saying, don't forget that that is the Jesus you worship. Don't forget that that is the God who gave you your salvation. Approach him with fear. Approach him with trembling. And fear and trembling is worship, is it not? Have you ever stood before a mountain so large that it's almost kind of scary to look at? Or, or have you ever hiked on top of a mountain and, you, and you're just admiring the glory that you see but also kind of afraid of the power of what you're looking at or in the midst of a huge storm or the lightning bolts? I love when I was a kid in lightning. You know, we get awful weather in Georgia and you hear these huge lightning bolts and the power go out and you're afraid but you're just in awe and you want to sit there and watch, right? Who loves watching storms, right? It's amazing, but you're afraid, but you're like, I, I want to watch. There's a tornado warning that couple weeks ago and I was in my basement. We were all looking out the window like, where's this tornado? Like, I want to see it, but I'm afraid. I want to look and where's it at? We're in awe. It's an attitude of almost like uh, when they come to God with the same attitude, that's, 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 that's worship, is it not? And say, God, I'm afraid of you, but I can't get away from you. I, I'm in fear of you, but I, I, I want to run to you. And in fear and trembling, run before your feet and just and bow. I know what you can do to me. I know that you have saved me. I know that you are so large and so huge and incomprehensibly big, but I tremble as I run to you. That's what Paul is saying. That's, the, that, that's almost like a childlike wonder, right, that we must always be cultivating in our life. Fear and tremble before him. Because God is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. And this is part of the good news. This working out of your salvation is not just your work. No, part of the mystery of God's absolute sovereignty, which I joyfully hold to, is this. Your work is his work. He is working through your work. And here we can start scratching the surface of divine mysteries of how God works through your free will to bring about his good purposes. Well, how does that work? If you figure it out, let me know. Right? For a couple thousand years, people have been trying to figure it out. And if you figure it out, then whoo, that'd be awesome. This is a confusing mystery. Right? How is it that when you labor... And growing in Christ, trying to conform your will to his, that God says, yeah, I'm working through your work too. That's me. I actually destined you to do this. and I'm working. You're like, well, I want to do this. Exactly. It's like, well, I don't know how that works. Instead of getting anxiety about this, instead of getting anxiety about how, you know, God's sovereignty works out in our life, can we just find comfort in it? Can we find comfort to say, God, I don't know how this works, but I want my will to conform to yours. And I know you're working through me, and thank, thank you, God, that I'm not alone in this work. Thank you, God, that it's not just me laboring and toiling as if it's fully up to me, but I'm going to do all that I can 
to grow into your likeness, but I know that you're working in me. I need your work, but I need the strength to do the work. That's how our prayers need to sound. I don't care about reconciling those two things anymore. God is bigger than we could possibly ever imagine. Let the mysteries be there. Let the mysteries draw you in awe and to say, God, work through me as I labor with all of my might to love you more than anything else in this world and that my life may be conformed to yours. As we work out this salvation with fear and trembling, as we are comforted to know that God is working through us, through our work, Paul then gets specific. This life of the cross that they are to pursue, he focuses on their attitude, their hearts, and even their motivations towards one another in the body life, if you will, of the church. He says this, Do all things, Christians in Philippi, without grumbling, without disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights of the world, holding fast to the work of life. Stop complaining, Paul says. That's when you start feeling like Paul's scattered, like pew, 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 pew. But again, he's addressing a church that has specific issues. If they were hearing these words, like, yeah, I understand why you're saying all this stuff. But here we are. So now he's saying, guys, stop complaining. As you're working it out, of all things he mentions, stop the complaining. Stop the grumbling. Stop disputing with one another. He's already addressed their lack of unity once, and he gets specific here again. He says, don't grumble. Do all things without it. What is included in all things? All things. There's nothing not included in all things. And there's a better way to say that, but I don't know how to say it. But you get what I'm trying to say. I can be a grumbler. Sometimes it feels awkwardly good to complain about things. Can my fellow grumblers say amen? It's weird, right? It's almost as if you want to feel vindicated for something that you are going through that's not going your way. And you want somebody to hear you complain and say, you're right, you know, you know, your grumbling is correct. You are vindicated for just telling me how bad it is, and I understand, and you are in the right. That's what we want to hear. But of course that never happens, right? People don't want to hear it, because then they want to complain too, and then they get negative, and then you get even more negative, and everybody's just like, ugh, when it's all said and done, it doesn't do anything. But even worse, more than likely here, they were grumbling and complaining to one another possibly even about one another because he throws in the word disputes in the church. That is not the light of Christ. That is not the path of life conformed to the cross. This is not holding each other as more important than ourselves. That's how things operate elsewhere in this world, but not in the body of Christ. In his church, we should find forgiveness and grace towards one another. A grumbling and disputing church is not a light to the community. Our corner of Wilmington here will not be drawn to Emmanuel if we are known for our grumbling and disputing. Imagine if somebody said, hey, I heard that church over there has lots of inward disputes. I heard that they're always complaining about each other to one another, creating little factions who don't like each other. That sounds awesome. I want to join that church. We are a bunch of people who are imperfect. I understand. And oftentimes we will be able to find many many excuses to complain about one another, even to one another. That always happens when you throw a bunch of people from different backgrounds in one room together from all walks of life. But the difference here is that we are in Christ. We know that we are all imperfect, and we also know that all of us have been forgiven 
And we are to extend the grace of forgiveness and forbearance and patience towards one another, just like God has extended to us. And that is our lampstand. That is our light that we are to shine in this world with. There is the light of the gospel, the working out of our salvation that we have already received. I want to be a church that's known by those things. For that is how we hold fast to the word of life. Paul continues on, and he gets a little personal. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad, and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, Paul ends this section speaking kind of as their spiritual father, pleading with them. He wants to face his final meeting with Christ, knowing that his pastoral work among them has led to the fruit that he is talking about. That has led to the idea of being this shining light of Christ in the world, knowing that he didn't labor in vain. And then we catch a glimpse of Paul's vision for pastoral ministry and how he wants to lead. He says, if I am to be poured out, the literal word, the literal word is, is libation or drink offering. On the sacrificial offering of their faith, he will rejoice no matter what it takes. This is how it is worked out. Service, servanthood, pouring yourself out. The image can be found in the Old Testament. There's a story when David and his army was close to Bethlehem in the midst of one of the battles, and the Philistines were close to his hometown, and they were blocking a, a, the, the path to a famous well that he had drink of when he was a child. And at one point, he kind of yells out in a bit of yearning and, and longing. He says, oh, if I could just have a sip of water from that well. Oh, if I could just drink that water that I had in my childhood. And his men, who had such reverence for him, they snuck out. And they grab a cup of water, right? At the risk of their own life, behind enemy lines, grabs the water, comes back and gives it to David. And David says, you guys risked your life to give me a cup of water? Because I'm not worthy to even drink this. And he pours it out in worship to God. He wouldn't drink it. He knew the high cost, and that's the idea here. Paul says that he wants to be poured out as an offering to God on the offering of their faith. He says, whatever it takes as a pastor, I'm going to pour myself out for you in order, in order that you may be conformed to Christ, in order that these things may be true among you. I am at your expense here. This bookends our conversation concerning pastoral leadership. Far from Paul being the leader of the tip of a triangle leadership, you know, he once again points us to this master story of Jesus, and he's calling the church to participate in, right? It sounds rather exhausting to be poured out for someone else, but isn't that what our Jesus did for us? Did he not pour himself out for us, making himself nothing? And this isn't just some church leadership text. This is a text for us all because Paul says, I want you guys to rejoice with me because really we're all called to pour ourselves out for one another. We are called to look at Christ and to see his patterns of living and say, far from complaining about some kind of preference that I have or grumbling about this or disputing it with some kind of way that it can go my way and this or that, you are to pour yourself out for one another. That's the humility that Paul is calling us to. And he says that in doing so, we will share in his joy. Because it's joyful. Jesus says it's better to give than to receive. And you know that's true. Even when it's painful to give something that's expensive and costly, you know the joy that comes from it. Right? When it's all said and done, it is a wonderful feeling. 
And he says there is joy to be found in living in this manner. So as we close, I want to encourage you all in a couple of ways. Why are you here? That sounds like an odd question, perhaps. But hear me out. Why are you here this morning? What draws you to want to be a part of this church? I want you to be here because you hear all this stuff about Jesus. And you say, yes, I want to be with Jesus because Emmanuel talks about Jesus. He is present there. Whenever I'm a part of this Bible study or prayer meeting or Sunday morning worship service or whatever may be happening here, I know that I'm going to meet with Jesus because he is present there. And that's why I love this church. I don't want you to be here because of Derek's awesome piano playing because he really is awesome. But I don't want you to be here just because of that. I want you to be here because you see and worship Jesus through his fingers on those keys. We want our sermons here to not draw you to one individual person or personality, but rather to Jesus. It must be about him and him alone. We must be making disciples of Jesus and not disciples of Daniel Nelms or or Derek or anybody else here. I want you to be here because of him, to be part of a family that pursues that together alongside of one another, a church family who wants to do this together beneath leaders who are guiding them to do that. I was just speaking with Jim DiBiaso yesterday about this, but sometime, you know, in the future, is in my hiring process, you know, this is part of the plan of the grander, longer picture, right? We as a church, I want to pursue some kind of broader network, denomination, something that can help hold us accountable to these things because it is a grand work that I am inadequate to do on my own, right? That even us as leaders are inadequate to do on our own. That us as a church are inadequate to do on our own. We need some help from the outside. We need the wisdom of of multiple churches and groups of churches to help counsel and guide us through this process. In due time, I pray that we can find the right fit for us so that for the next 150 years if the Lord should tarry, Emmanuel will still be standing with a whole different generation, with a whole different group of people still worshiping Jesus in the legacy that we have as a church. Number two, are you a grumbler? Are you a complainer? Do you know that grumbling and complaining only leads to disputing, to factions, to divisions? Christ did. Uh, He did bring a divide to those who know him and don't know him, right? But he didn't bring a divide inside of his own church body. Even at home or at work, complaining only reveals an ungrateful heart and often a selfish heart that is more concerned about yourself than others. Complaining only grabs a hold of others and then brings them down to your low level as well. What does it look like for you to give thanks in moments when you want to complain? What does it look like to be a church family that finds less and less and less, and in fact, no excuses to grumble against one another, but learns to extend the grace and forgiveness to each other when we find ourselves in the midst of disagreement? And this leads us to our final point, We need to pour ourselves out for one another. We need to once again remind ourselves that others are more important than ourselves. You are more important than me. And like Paul, I am to see my life as an offering to the Lord to be poured out for you, for one another in love and in joy. I can't redeem you. I can't save you. You can't redeem or save anybody next to you. That work belongs to Jesus. But I want all of us to be working our own salvation out already, our, our already accomplished work of salvation 
by showing one another a life shaped by Jesus in the service of one another, in the love of one another. And right now we're going to transition to communion, which I'm really excited about. So if you have a cup with you, please grab it now. If you need one, please uh, raise your hand if you didn't get one on the way in. And we have uh, somebody here who can pass them out. We've had, again, very few hands, only, in fact, I believe Bernie's hands on this, or not even on them. We just opened up the box and we're holding them out. So we're trying to reduce as much, you know, traffic as we can here with the cups. And so if you need one, please raise your hand. I'm going to read through 1 Corinthians 11. I'm going to walk through Paul's words concerning the Lord's Supper, that final meal he ate with his disciples. Just a few reminders. Communion is a sacrament, and it is for Christians. If you're unsure if you're in Christ, please don't feel embarrassed or ashamed or weirded out, weirded out by being the one sitting there not taking communion. It's okay, Emmanuel, we are a welcoming family. This is not a time to make you feel excluded or anything. Don't be afraid of that. We would ask if that it's you, that you would take this next portion of our service to reflect on what it means to be a Christian, what it means to this call to turn from sin and to confess Jesus as your Lord, as your Savior, as your new King, and be brought into this redeemed family, to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and to be brought into newness of life, even now. Take these next few moments, if that's you, to ponder upon these things and pray through them. For those of us who know Jesus, who identify as Christians, I'm going to walk through this passage and guide us to the taking of, of, of the elements. But I want to say something. Can I just say this and get like an elephant out of the room sometimes? I think it happens in communion services. Communion is not a funeral because the cross wasn't a funeral, right? The cross wasn't a funeral. We know a few days later he rose out of that grave. And so times of communion is a multifaceted time when, yes, it can be sometimes we need to approach this, these elements with, with a somberness because we remember the sin that's in our life, the sin that put the nails through his hands, and we mourn for our sin. We mourn for the brokenness of the world, and we mourn that it costs our dear Lord and Savior Jesus his own life. And we mourn for that. That's legitimate. Sometimes we need to mourn over our sin and say, Jesus, wash me anew. You, the, the cost of my sin was so extravagant. I am humbled once again as I remember the death that you died on my behalf. But also some celebration. That sometimes with joy we can take these elements to say, I didn't have to die. What grace, what amazing grace that the Lord of all creation gave himself up for me. And with joy and thanksgiving I take these elements to remember his body broken for me and his blood shed for me. It doesn't have to be a somber time. It can be multiple things being felt in this room and that is okay. So if we're taking the elements, you want to shout out a hallelujah? Shout it out. We want to hear it, right? So let's look at our passage in 1 Corinthians 11 as Paul was guiding the church in Corinth to walk through it. So I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You may now take the bread.
In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. You may now take the cup. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I want us to say that together. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I want us to, to say that together as we close this time of communion. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Come, Lord Jesus. Right now, what we're going to be doing is entering a time of reflection and prayer. So the worship team are going to be leading us in a song right now, and I encourage you to stay seated, to pray. Um, we, we have some of our elders here in the front. I'll be available as well. If you need prayer, don't be ashamed. Walk up, grab one of us, right? We can find a corner. We'll socially distance. You know, we'll do all that we can to, to take you aside and to pray for you, Okay. Uh, open up some scriptures, read some psalms, take the few next minutes to, to respond to all the things that the Spirit has done this morning, to respond to our time of communion. And then afterwards, we'll have a closing song, and um, Pastor Jim will ask us to stand after this time of response. We'll close with a song, and I'll come up and finish this off with a benediction. So I'm going to kick it over to you guys. How sweet the sound Amazing love Now flowing down From hands and feet That were nailed to the tree As grace flows down and covers me How sweet the sound, amazing love, now flowing down from hands and feet that were nailed to the tree, as grace flows down and covers me. It covers me It covers me It covers me It covers me
first hands a wounded side this is love this is love holy heart was sacrificed this is love this is love I bow down to the Holy One I bow down to the Lamb I bow down to the Worthy One I bow down to the Lamb Son of God, He died for us. This is love, this is love. He walked the hill and bore the cross. This is This is love I bow down to the Holy One I bow down to the Lamb I bow down to I bow down to the Holy One. I bow down to the Lamb. I bow down to the Worthy One. I bow down to the Pierced hands, a wounded side. This is love. This is love. Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Lord, how we praise you for your ultimate sacrifice. How we praise you for doing what none of us could do. No man, woman who ever born could do. Because you are the Holy One. Only a holy God and a perfect man could do what you did 
how we glorify you today, Lord. How we thank you, Father. How we thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being here with us today. Hallelujah. We'll call the worship team up as we close today. We'll sing the song that we sang earlier. King of Kings. Let's stand together. This is a song that encompasses all. From the cradle, to the cross, to the resurrection, to the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church. Let's worship him with that today. In the darkness we were waiting Without hope and without light Till from heaven you came running There was mercy in your eyes To fulfill the law and prophets To a virgin came the word From a throne of endless glory to a cradle in the dirt. Raise the Father, restore. 
verse 24 through 25. Now to him who is able to keep her from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be the glory, the majesty, the dominion, and the authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. Thank you, guys. We'll see you next week.